Y'all help me thank the worship team for leading us this morning. Yeah, so good. We got our friend Caroline and uh, Brandon was with us and Maddie Grace and then Eddie jumping in with them as well. So thank y'all so much. Uh, Caroline, Brandon and Maddie Grace are a part of Crew uh, Campus Ministry here on UNC's campus and uh, really, really grateful for the partnership that is happening between our local church and that campus ministry. And so we love having them uh, lead us today. We're going to keep moving through our uh, slow walk through the Gospel of Luke that we have been in together for the last several months. And as a matter of fact, uh, at the beginning here of the message, I want to help reorient us a little bit in uh, where we have been so far in this story. So we began back in November, uh, starting through the Gospel of Luke, uh, and we talked about this idea of on the way as this overarching uh, idea for the whole Gospel of Luke. Um, African-American uh, biblical scholar Willie James Jennings says that Luke puts God on the ground. Luke puts God on the ground and he notes how all the way through Luke's gospel and then the uh, accompanying book, the book of Acts, that tells about what happens uh, on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He notes that we have this journey that is happening uh, throughout the gospel of Luke. There's this journey that is happening towards Jerusalem. And we're going from uh, the outer edges and the margins of activity towards uh, what was seen as the center of the faith at that time towards Jerusalem. As Jesus is making his way with his disciples towards the cross to undergo the crucifixion, laying down his life for us as a sacrifice for our sins, the spilling of his blood to cover our sins, bringing us into a reconciled relationship with God, defeating sin, and then also overthrowing the power of death itself three days later in the victory of the resurrection. And so the Gospel of Luke is moving towards Jerusalem. Then when we get into the companion book, the book of Acts, we see that it begins in Jerusalem, but then is moving outward. It's moving away from Jerusalem and crossing all of these barriers uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel of Acts begins in Jerusalem, uh, but then begins to cross all of these missionary boundaries and barriers and ends up at the very end in the heart of Rome, seen as the symbolic center of the world at that time. And so this Jesus is a journey on the way. Uh, from there, we moved into the season of Advent, and so we were anticipating the arrival of Jesus at Christmas, and especially in the way that Luke tells that story. And he tells so many important stories around uh, the prophecy of Jesus' birth, uh, the angel announcement, uh, the announcement that comes to Mary, the announcement that comes to Mary's cousin Elizabeth, and the fact that Elizabeth and her husband are going to be uh, the parents of John the Baptist, the one who's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And then uh, we, we have the realization of that as it gets spelled out there in the beginning 
of the book of Luke. And Luke does a beautiful job that we come back to year after year in that cycle of our journey through the Christian year in marking the arrival of Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament that become truth and reality as Jesus is born in this world at Christmas. From there, we moved into a section that we refer to as Into the Wild. And with that, we were uh, looking at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And so we looked at this figure of John the Baptist again. We're going to be looking at him uh, today uh, as well. And so we looked at this figure of John the Baptist and his ministry and the way that he was preparing the way for uh, the ministry of Jesus to be launched. Our friend Val did an awesome job of preaching through John the Baptist and, and him baptizing Jesus and the revelation at that moment of the sky opening up of the voice of the Father speaking over Jesus as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. And we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And that's what we're trying to do through this. Our friend Elena walked us through then as Jesus goes from there, the, the baptism moment into his temptation moment as he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted three times by Satan and overcomes that temptation, fulfilling for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus being faithful at the point at which we consistently fail. From there, we moved into Jesus announcing the launch of his ministry through this sermon that he gives at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And he draws on the prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah 61. He opens up the scroll that day there in his hometown synagogue, and he reads what is written in the words of Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the oppressed, release for the captives, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, when all things are set right again, when debts are canceled, when, say, when those who have been enslaved are set free. It's a beautiful moment there in the ministry of Jesus. And then... He delivers the sermon after he reads that passage. His sermon on that passage is simply this. Today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. What a sermon. Powerful, powerful. For that, he gets chased to the edge of town and almost killed. All right, so then we move from there uh, into the section that, that we started together and that we're still in together called Kingdom Come. And this revelation of what this looks like. Uh, now that we are into the ministry of Jesus, we're seeing the signs of the kingdom arriving. The kingdom has arrived through Jesus. The long-awaited promises coming true through the ministry of Jesus. Justin did an awesome job preaching last week through the, the miracle of the, the raising from the dead of the widow's son. Powerful 
powerful message that Justin gave us last week. And in that, in that section there, and in Luke chapter 6, we get Jesus delivering uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of these collected teachings of Jesus, this sermon that sits at the center of the ministry of Jesus that explains and articulates what it looks like when the kingdom becomes reality and what we are getting swept up in and what we are invited into when we become followers of Jesus. So that's leading us up to where we are today. That was a brief little catch up of where we've been so far in this gospel. Uh, we understand that the way that the gospels are written, uh, many of the earliest Christians would have read this all together, like in, in, in a reading, like, as a, like you would do with a novel or a story. When we approach Scripture, uh, we often uh, lean so heavily on the um, chapter breaks and the verse divisions that are not obviously a part of the original document and the way that it was originally crafted. And so we often lose that sense of sweeping story that the original readers would have picked up on. So it's important for us to keep coming back and reorient ourselves in that story. And as we get into today, you'll understand even why, even more why we needed to go back to that beginning. And especially that introduction that we got to John the Baptist. He's going to be prominent in what we're looking at today. So today we are still in Luke chapter 7. And uh, we're going to start with uh, verse 18. Before we do... Let's pause and pray here. Jesus, we confess our belief in you today. We confess our faith in you today. And we say that we are hungry to hear from you. Our hearts and our minds are open. Our lives are open. We're asking to hear. We're asking to see. We're asking to be challenged. We're asking to be changed. Direct words today so that your word is what comes through clearly. Teach us, provoke us, remind us, and show us what it looks like to walk in the way with you. For those who are here today and are curious about you, I ask that they would be able to see a clear picture of who you are. We don't claim to have the ability to make that happen. But we ask through your grace that you would open people's eyes to see who you are. And if they're curious, I pray that they would be drawn more closely to you today. For those who have been hurt and are carrying wounds, inflicted by the church or this church or people who claim your name in their lives. We pray that there will be healing today. 
We ask that there would be grace in that today. We ask that you would cut through and let people see you today. Let your voice come through today. Let your heart come through today. We want people to encounter you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, starting here with uh, verse 18. So this is on the heels after the, the sermon that Jesus preaches and then uh, two miracles that Jesus performs after that. Here's what it says. John's disciples, that's John the Baptist again. John the Baptist's disciples told him about all of these things, these miracles that are taking place in the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and Jesus uh, collecting these disciples around him and forming this community of the way of Jesus around him. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent, sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? The fact that that question gets repeated again so closely there, it's asking us to lean in and to pay attention. There's so much emphasis on that question. John the Baptist sending his disciples to ask the question, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there in this, uh, in this passage here. So we get John the Baptist, as we've already talked about, who is born 
to be the trailblazer for Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. Uh, both are born miraculously. Uh, in, in the case of Jesus, we have the virgin birth with his mother Mary, uh, his father Joseph who raises him. Uh, but then for John the Baptist's birth, his parents are beyond the age of being able to have children. They had not been able to have children. And then God answers this prayer that's at the depth of their heart, the deepest longing of their heart. And in the same way, he's answering not just their personal prayer, but he's answering this national prayer for the people of Israel, this ancient hope for the people of Israel. And so he sends John the Baptist to be this trailblazer to go ahead of Jesus and to prepare the way, this prophet who will declare the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist uh, is, it tells us that when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, when Mary is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, it tells us that when Mary speaks to Elizabeth, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. And it says John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit at the sound of Mary's voice, recognizing that Mary is carrying the Messiah. This connection goes that far back, and it has been that clear and unmistakable for John the Baptist. Again, he's the one that before Jesus' ministry begins, John the Baptist is out ahead of him, preparing the way, baptizing people, telling them to prepare themselves because the kingdom of God is on the way and the kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready for it. And he's the one who announces Jesus when he arrives. He's the one who points to Jesus and tells all of his followers to leave him and to go follow Jesus instead. He says, my ministry is complete. My whole purpose was to be here to point to him. Go and follow him. And John the Baptist, who had this ministry that was uh, bustling around him, is once again in obscurity because they go and they follow Jesus and the, the, the attention shifts to Jesus. This is who we're talking about here. We're talking about this man who is so committed to this mission of preparing the way for the Messiah and pointing to Jesus and declaring the arrival of Jesus. They had dedicated his whole life to this and he understood that. He was a wild man who had no problem at all confronting the status quo, confronting the religious authorities and the government authorities of his day. Even so much so that at this moment, he sends messengers. Why? Because he's in prison at this moment in his life. He's not only worked his way through offending all of the religious leaders and the religious establishment of his day, saying things to them like, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Calling them a brood of vipers, telling them to be ready because the axe was already at the base of their tree. All right. This is this kind of man, not shy about proclaiming this. 
proclaiming to King Herod at the time that he was living in sin and that he would be judged for it. So confrontational to Herod that Herod had him thrown in prison to shut him up and to get him out of his face. He was not afraid. He was bold. He was willing to die for the sake of the Messiah. He was not afraid. And yet we have him in this moment, in his imprisonment, with his impending death hanging over his head. And we see this moment of doubt that creeps in for him. And he has this question as he's there in the prison cell, seeing his life coming to its end. And he's wrestling with this question. Is he really the one? All of this that I gave my life to, is this really it? Did I get this right? Did I get this right for me? Probably more important in John's mind, did I get this right for all of those people that I directed towards him? Is he really the one? Is he really the one? Or should we go on waiting? Tertullian uh, was an African theologian key in shaping the theology uh, of the ancient church, of the historic church. And he says this, Hope is patience with the lamp lit. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. When I read that quote this week, I could see John the Baptist holding that, not just a lamp, but a blazing torch, a trailblazer who was really, in a lot of ways, ready and willing to burn down the whole status quo system in order to make way for the new way of Jesus. And yet here we have him in this moment where it seems as if the lamp is going dim. In the darkness of this prison cell, left with nothing but his questions. And we can see the embers flickering into ash. Are you really the one? Or should we wait? for someone else. This, where John found himself in the moment, was not the outcome that he expected. But I don't think that's what it is that's driving John in this moment. The fact that he's thrown into prison again. Look at the scope of his life. Let Scripture uh, be the commentary on Scripture. Let Scripture be the one that helps us understand what a passage means. That's where we turn to first. And as we look at the full scope of how we see John the Baptist portrayed in the Gospels, we see a person who's ready and willing to die for the sake of the Messiah and for this mission. So really I don't think that it's that John is looking at his surroundings and the fact that he's in prison and thinking, I wasn't expecting this. I think to a certain extent, John was very ready for that and willing for that, or he wouldn't have gone into the teeth of authority like he did over and over again. I think what John is really wrestling 
with here is the expectations around the Messiah. Not whether or not he'd be willing to die for the Messiah, but whether or not this is what the Messiah is going to look like. At this point in time, the people of Israel had in their minds the reality that a Messiah was going to come and to rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Just like God had rescued them from so many of the great empires of history that we read about through world history. And as we read back through this list of mighty empires, time and time again, we see that the people of Israel are the ones who get oppressed by them over and over and now here they are being oppressed by the roman empire and they're waiting for a deliverer to come a rescuer to come and set them free and they're expecting a leader in the mold of king david someone who's going to come and take on this battle and overthrow the giants and set them free but instead what he's seeing in Jesus is something completely different. And I think that is what John is wrestling with in this moment. It's not the, the, the fact that he's in prison and that he's facing persecution. He was ready for that. It's that Jesus is not meeting his expectations of what he thought a Messiah would look like. So, of course, when Jesus hears this, he must be deeply disappointed in the wavering faith of this great prophet trailblazer, John the Baptist. John, you've been with me since day one, for real, like all the way back. We go that far back and now you're wavering on me? We're barely getting this thing off the ground and already you're bailing on me? Have faith, John. Have faith. You think that's what Jesus is going to answer back to him? That's what I would expect. I would expect Jesus to come back at John with some of his own medicine. To say, remember how hard you were on all of the religious scholars? Remember how hard you were on all of the political leaders? How you held nothing back? Well, now it's your turn, John. I'm going to hold nothing back and I'm going to unleash on you and call you into that kind of bold faith again. But Jesus doesn't do that. That's what we would probably expect and maybe we would think that's what John needs. But instead, throughout the rest of this passage, we see Jesus responding, responding with layer after layer of grace being sent back to John. First, he tells John's dis disciples to go and report what they have seen and her. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Tell him about these miracles that are happening. Tell him that the blind see, that the deaf hear. Tell him that the dead live again. Tell him that the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Go and tell that report to John. Rather than the overt overthrow of the Roman Empire, Jesus has unleashed the subversive beauty of the kingdom of God into the world. Rather than an armed uprising, he is bringing the shocking signs of salvation 
and of all things being set right again and of creation healed. These are the signs that the kingdom has come, Jesus says, not in a war, but through grace and love and healing. These signs are all there. They're out in the open. And so when Jesus sends them back and says, go tell John what you have seen, and he gives them that language to tell John, then obviously he's going to be excited to hear about these miracles. And it's going to be some evidence and some proof to him. But we can't miss what is happening. Actually, that's happening deeper in this response. There's a deeper layer to this than just this surface excitement of the miracles that are taking place. Because in the very language that Jesus intentionally chooses to send back to John, we hear not just a description of the reality of what's happening around Jesus, but we also hear very evident echoes of a particular prophet from the Old Testament. Something that John would have recognized. Something that would have been very close to the core of John's sense of calling, of John's sense of identity. And would have spoken directly to the place where John was there was a certain Old Testament prophecy that all throughout the Gospels John gets associated with the most. Oftentimes the first time that we're introduced to John, we get this prophecy tagged to him from the very beginning to give us a sense of what John's mission is and of who this person is. Is. Does anybody know what that prophecy is? Do you have the, the language for it or maybe you even have the reference for it? Anybody know? There it is. Who said that? Awesome. Thank you, Wes. Excellent. Voice in the wilderness. Anybody know where that comes from? Who's the prophet that says that? Isaiah. Isaiah. That comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And over and over again in the Gospels, when we get introduced to John the Baptist, we're told that he's the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the arrival of the Lord. And so Jesus speaks directly to that. And in this language that Jesus chooses to send back to John to answer this question, rather than just saying, yes, John, I am the one, get on board. He says, tell John this. And in that description, John's going to hear the echoes from Isaiah chapter 61. And in those words, he's going to hear the echoes from Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6. And in those words, he's going to hear the echoes from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. And in those words, he's going to hear the echoes of Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Layer after layer of grace in what Jesus sends back to John. Remember Isaiah, John? Remember your whole mission? You did it, John. You were faithful. You were faithful, and here's the sign that you've been faithful. These other prophecies from Isaiah are coming true as well. All around you, 
prophecies are coming true. And even though you can hear in these in each of these passages, you can hear uh, from each of these in Isaiah the echoes of what Jesus is saying here. When you look at the words that Jesus speaks to speaks to John here, he's leaning the most heavy on one of these passages in particular. It's Isaiah chapter 35. And it's not just those verses that we mentioned, not just verse, verses 5 and 6. I'll read those first. Here's what it says. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. John, being rooted in the scriptures, would have gone back to Isaiah 35 and would have realized that Jesus was answering him from very passage. And then because he would have had this rooted so deeply in him, John probably would have remembered the rest of the words from this chapter as well. And here's the whole chapter. It's not, not very long, just a few verses here. See if you can hear John in this. And imagine John in his prison cell getting this answer back from Jesus. Jesus saying, John, don't forget about Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. Where's John the Baptist when we first meet him in his ministry? Out in the desert. A voice in the desert. It goes on to say, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. As we go on down, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fear, fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. The haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. Amen. Amen. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What an answer to send back to John. What an incredible gift. In the midst of all of this pain, in the midst of this questioning, this is what he gets back. Jesus says to him, John, if you're looking for a sign, here it is. The desert is coming to life. The desert is coming to life. The wilderness is bursting into bloom. You went into the dead places, John, and you left a trail of blossoms in your footsteps. John, you went out into the dry places and you left streams of life in your wake. John, your prayers have come true. It's not all falling apart on you. You have been faithful. You have been faithful. 
And here are the signs of it all around. There's another layer of grace here. It's not just in the fact that Jesus sends this answer back to John, which is absolutely beautiful that Jesus did that. Then Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to speak to the crowd about who John is, just so that there's no doubt left in anyone there about the place of John in the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus is viewing John the Baptist. He's not responding with a rebuke to John for this question, but instead he turns and he says to the people, what did you go out into the desert to see? When you went flocking out there with all of those crowds because you heard what John was up to out there, what was it that you went out there to see? Did you go to look at some reeds that were swaying in whichever direction the breeze would blow? No, that's not what you went to see. Did you go out there to see a person dressed in fine clothes like the kind of person you would find in a palace? No, that's not what you went to see. John's not that kind of prophet. John's not the kind of prophet who says what kings want to hear just so that they can stay in proximity to the power that the king can give. No, no, no. John was out in the desert declaring the truth no matter what it cost him. John was a prophet and the greatest of them all. And there's no one in the kingdom of God who's greater than John. Absolutely beautiful. Then he continues the great reversal mystery by saying, and yet those who are least in the kingdom of God are somehow greater than John. In this upside down, backwards, beautiful way that Jesus is reordering the world. It's absolutely beautiful. This other layer of grace that he gives. Jesus says, Malachi chapter 3 was talking about John, this Old Testament prophecy of one who would go before me. They were talking about John. He's the greatest in the kingdom. He is not a reed easily swayed. He's not a power-hungry prophet. No, this is the real thing. This is the real thing. Four things that stand out to me about this, and we're closing right here. Four things that I want you to take with you this week, and the last one is going to be a challenge for us to carry together. Number one, the thing that stands out to me about this, the first thing is that even John the Baptist had questions. Even John the Baptist had questions. I'll come back to that in just a second. Number two, even John the Baptist received compassion. Number three, not even John the Baptist got simple answers. And then number four, a question of our own. Where do you see the signs of Jesus and his kingdom come? To unpack those questions for just a moment here, even John the Baptist had questions. This is a moment where it seems like it's all coming apart for John. And if you find yourself in that place, maybe you once were that person who felt like you were holding up the lantern of hope for so many others and blazing the trail for them and pointing them to Jesus. And now you look at your lamp and it seems like there are only embers and ash left flickering. And you wonder if there's a place for you with Jesus. 
with doubt like that. And Jesus says, you're sitting right next to John the Baptist, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Your questions are welcome here. Your questions are welcome here. Maybe you're lingering with that question of, are you really the one? Or have I been following the wrong way? And maybe even worse for me, have I pointed other people in the wrong way? And Jesus says, lean into that question. Let's walk with that question together. Test me on that. And let's explore that together. Even John the Baptist received compassion. Someone with the faith level of John the Baptist, who now in this moment is riddled with these questions and is wrestling with these questions. Even someone with that level of faith coming to that level of a question, even that person receives compassion for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't boom back at him with, you've lost all of your faith. What is wrong with you? No, Jesus is gentle in his answer back. And he speaks to John in a way that really only John would understand at the depth of his core. And he tailors that answer directly to who John is and speaks at the depths of who John is. Even John the Baptist received compassion. Someone who didn't seem to have very much compassion for other people with faith questions. Even he received compassion. And you will too. You will too. Number three, not even John the Baptist got simple answers. Jesus, just give me a yes or a no. He didn't get a simple answer, but he got an invitation to continue on in the journey. And I think for some of you today, Jesus is sending that. And where do you see the signs of Jesus and his kingdom come. Let this be the convincing proof. I would challenge you to look around with that this week. Maybe you feel like you have sent the question to Jesus and you're not getting an answer back that feels very clear. Or maybe you're not getting an answer back at all. Borrow the answer that Jesus gave to John. And Jesus says, look around you at the signs of the kingdom. Where do you see me? at work? Where do you see grace breaking through the surface? Where do you see the echoes of my love making their way to you? Where do you see me at work? Now here's the problem. Jesus did tell us, challenged his disciples, that we shouldn't do all of our good works out in public. He told us that. So that means that a lot of the signs of where Jesus is moving and how Jesus is working are happening behind the scenes. And many of them might be hidden and you might need to press in a little bit on that. You might need to do a little searching and digging. But I believe that if you open your heart and your eyes to that, he will show you. Grace breaking through. Echoes of his love making their way to you. I challenge you to live with that question this week. Where do you see signs of Jesus and his kingdom come? As always, come back to the Gospels. As always, come back 
to the Gospels. If you can't bring yourself to read anything else in Scripture, root yourselves in the Gospels and go through them over and over and over again and walk with Jesus through the Gospels and ask Him to show you in the place where He has already shown us the sure signs of what the kingdom looks like. Lean into that. But if you can't even bring yourself to do that, then at least carry this question with you. Where do you see the signs of Jesus and his kingdom come? And I believe if you walk around with that question, then you will remember that even John the Baptist had questions, so it's okay to carry that. Even John the Baptist received compassion, and you will too. And not even John the Baptist got simple answers. So be willing to sit with it and wait for it and allow him to answer that question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should I wait for someone else? Speaking of signs of the kingdom. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus sat with them around the table. And he took these twin signs that carried so much meaning throughout the history of the people of Israel. These signs pointed back to how God had set them free from slavery in Egypt and had led them into freedom. And now as they were remembering that story and celebrating that story, centuries later, Jesus said to his disciples who were around the table, I'm doing this again, but in a way that is deeper and wider than you ever could have imagined. Jesus took the bread that was on the table, a common symbol, and he infused it with new meaning when he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, broken to make the world whole. He took the cup that was on the table and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the sacrifice of sin, for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste of this, remember what I have done for you. We're going to share in this together today. And maybe Jesus is pressing on your heart that today... The signs of the way of Jesus and of the kingdom come breaking in are right here in front of you. A reminder once again of the depth of Jesus' love for you, that he gave his own body and his own blood to bring us into a reconciled relationship with God so that we could experience what it means to walk with him, to experience new life in him, and to live in the joy of the kingdom. You're invited into that today. And I pray that these would be among those signs and symbols that you see this week of his grace breaking through and of the echoes of his love making their way to you. As you come forward, uh, you're going to be invited to come out uh, one row at a time. 
And we're going to have you come out on this side, come down to the table. You will be served the bread and the cup and then make your way across the front here and then back around to your seats that way. Come and receive the signs and the symbols of the kingdom come. Amen.